Sorry about that. I had to try and get my iPad to listen to me. Don't you hate it when your computer will not do what you want it to do? Let's pray together. Jesus, help us to understand the enormous transition that you took your disciples through and help us to be able to follow them and to follow you. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. One of my big frustrations over the years in a church has been that people would often stop by my, our office and ask to borrow a key. And, you know, with a church, you've always got all kinds of doors that need keys, all kinds of closets and stuff like that. And so we'd go over and we had this nice setup where the keys would all be hanging on hooks and we'd hand them the key and they'd take the key and we'd never see the key again. And then I'd have to go and get another key cut and I'd do it even and hang it up and then people would come, can I borrow the key? And I'd give them the key and they'd take the key and we'd never see the key again. And after a while, I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. I've got to come up with a better way to handle this frustrating problem. I have the same problem with tools, by the way, but keys were the one that first got to me. And so I figured out I'm going to create a key chain that will make sure that people never ever again walk away with my keys. And so I'd like to show you my key chain. (laughs) Almost three feet long with every single key that we need in this church for any reason at all. And the beauty about this is actually I'd started this at a previous church and this is this is Medlock Church's keychain. I'd started at a previous church and I have never again lost my keys because nobody wants to go home with this monstrous group of keys, heavy group of keys. And even if they do, they know where they got them and they know that they'll bring them back. And so that was a very simple solution that we have. And these, by the way, these are the keys to our church. Isn't that amazing? How many keys it takes just to operate this one church. Isn't that incredible? All right. Now, I want to use that as an illustration of the fact that Jesus has given us the keys to his kingdom. And the day he did that was an incredibly important changing day in world history. Up until that point in time, the nation Israel had been appointed to be the light of God to the world. But the nation of Israel consistently resisted and refused to do it. But God had planned something in eternity past that would now sweep through and overtake the nation of Israel and that would from here on out become the light of the world. And it was a mystery in the sense that God had kept it hidden. It wasn't revealed until this particular specific day. And on this day, Jesus took his disciples out of the land of Israel And they went up to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee to a city called Caesarea Philippi. And in that setting, Jesus revealed to them that there is now something completely hidden before that is about to start coming into existence. And that is what we call today the church. Now, to us, church means, oh, it's a building where we go. That is not at all what church means at all. The word church comes from the word ecclesia, which means a summoned out group of people. People who were called out of somewhere for a specific meeting. So, for example, a town meeting. You call people out of the congregation, we have a town meeting. 
or you have a town meeting in San Marcos where you call, assemble the people who are residents of, of, of San Marcos. They come, and they're an ecclesia. So that's what an ecclesia was. It was a group of people who were summoned to a specific place for a specific purpose for a specific time. And what Jesus is going to reveal to them, and we'll go back to it in a moment, is he's going to say to them, I will build my church. His church, this, this new creation is going to bring into existence. In fact, it's an, the best way to do it is to follow all those words. And it, it's an eternal, international, holy nation that is the Christ kingdom right now on earth. First of all, it's eternal. It'll be something that will continue all the way into eternity. It'll be international. It's going to be made up of people from all kinds of nations. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, outside of the nation of Israel, when he introduces this idea to them. It's going to be a holy nation right now. It's a holy nation here on earth. And it's Christ's kingdom in its expression right now on earth. So I just needed to give you that heads up to why this was a big switch. Up until now, the nation Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, but they refused to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And as a result, he said, and God has another plan. In fact, it was plan A. And plan A is now going to kick into place, and I'm going to build my church. Now, Caesarea Philippi, the reason why Jesus took them here was, first of all, to get away from the Jewish leaders of the nation who were trying to kill him. This is just a few months before he went to the cross. He also wanted to get away from the crowds who wanted him to become their Messiah. They wanted a political king. They wanted somebody who was going to promise them what politicians always promise, but deliver it. They wanted to be delivered from the power of Rome, and they wanted it now. And Jesus had to get away from the crowds because that's not what he was about to do. Then he took them outside of the nation of Israel to Caesarea Philippi, just about 25 miles away. This place here was significant because this was a place where multiple gods were worshipped, pagan gods. For example, this was the place where the, the, where the, uh, the ancient god Baal was worshipped. And there were about 14 different um, uh, temples to Baal in this area. This was also the place where the Greeks believed their god Pan had been born in a cave. And so that's one of the key reasons that, that he took them there, because this is a place where multiple gods are worshipped. It was called Caesarea, however, because Philip had built a temple there to the, to, to the emperor, Caesar. And so this was a center of the worship of Caesar. So Jesus takes them out of, out of the Jewish territory into this pagan territory, and in the midst of gods who were not gods at all, in the midst of dead gods, He now calls calls on them to recognize him for who he really is. He is God. So you guys with me? And then as he gets them to recognize that, he introduces them to the concept of the church. And we today need to understand that because we hold the keys to the kingdom of God. So, the entrance key to the kingdom of God Jesus is going to reveal is people who admit and recognize that Jesus is God. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now notice what Jesus calls himself, the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity. And it was one of his favorite titles for himself, as he would call himself the Son of Man. So cementing that mind, that thought in their mind, he is a human being. 
okay? And he asks them, so what are people saying about me? Now, with his miracles, with his teaching, with everything that he had done so far for, for close to three years, the Jewish people had every opportunity, especially their leaders, to look at him and go, he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. Messiah, by the way, meant anointed one. The anointed one of God who would be chosen by God, filled by the Spirit, to be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. By now, the Jewish nation should have gone, our Messiah has come. He's here amongst us. But they deliberately chose not to recognize him as the Messiah. The Jewish religious leaders chose not to do it because if he was the Messiah, they would now lose power. They would lose their privileges, they would lose their power, and it would be gone. The people who, who, uh, the, the ordinary people wouldn't recognize him as Messiah because he flat refused to give them what they wanted. Right now we're going into the 2020 presidential elections. And you're watching people promise everything that they're going to do for us if you vote for them. People were the opposite. They were saying to, to Jesus, you're not doing what we're wanting you to do. We want you to overthrow Rome and give us a kingdom now. We don't care about eternity. We don't care about the rest of the world. We don't care about the future. We just want to be emancipated from Rome's power now. So they refused to put their faith in him. So he says, so what do people say? Now, notice how people are sort of aware that Jesus is not just an ordinary human being. And they say, some say John the Baptist. Somehow he's come back from the dead and, and you're, you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, prophet Jeremiah. Now, the thing, the John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah were all thought to be forerunners of the Messiah. They don't call him the ultimate Messiah. That's something that happens to this day. There are all kinds of churches that only call him a great prophet, a wonderful teacher, a good man. And all of that is absolutely stupid nonsense. He's all of that and more, okay? There's all kinds of religions and all kinds of organizations that call themselves churches that deny that Jesus Christ is God. All they will say is he's a great man, he's a prophet, he's a great teacher. I always love that when you talk to people like, oh, yeah, I die, Jesus, yes. <laughs> wonderful man, wonderful teacher, yeah. And Jesus looks at them and says, nope, nope. Way more than that, friend, way more than that. So, and he says to them, but you, who do you say that I am? And this is the question that every single human being who ever lives has to answer. But you, personally, who do you say that I am? Every single one of us is going to have to answer that question at some time in our lives. You have to make a decision about Jesus. You can insult him by calling him a great man. And it's an insult because he's way more than that. Oh, great prophet. He's way more than that. That is not a definition of who he is. And so the turning point in every single human life is when we answer this question, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is going to explain in a moment that all of a sudden God the Spirit God the Father enabled his brain to suddenly light up and understand something that he could not have humanly understood otherwise. There's the supernatural switch that God the Father throws in his brain that Peter all of a sudden clicks who Jesus really is. 
It's called inspiration, and I believe that it happens in every single one of our lives, that there comes a time when God suddenly throws that switch in your brain, and suddenly you realize the obvious. He's way more than just a prophet. He's way more than a good man or a teacher. He's way more than that. And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. First of all, the Christ. Remember what he's saying here. You are the one, the, the anointed one of God. Christ is, is, is equivalent to Messiah, and it means anointed one. You're the one who's been chosen by God to become the king of all the world, the final and ultimate prophet, and the consummate high priest. Okay, king of all the world, we discover as you go on and read the rest of the Bible, that's truly what he, what he is. He's absolute king. There are no other kings to take his place. He's the ultimate prophet. There is no one else who can come along and supplant him. Muhammad said, no, I'm the final prophet. No, he's not. Mary Baker Eddy said, I'm the final prophet. Louis Farrakhan is telling us, I'm the, the final prophet. He's getting old, by the way. <laughs> that interesting? If you're God, Louis, let's see you walk on water. Come on, Louis Farrakhan. If you're God, how come you're getting old? You should be forever young. What's with you? So the leaders of all of the, of the, of the religions of the world, you have to ask them, what do you do with Jesus? John writes in, in his first letter, he says this, how do you know if an organization is truly from God? He says it's very simple. What do they say about Jesus? If they say that Jesus is God, that's part of us. If they do not admit that Jesus is God, they are not the true group. No matter how big they put the word church in their name, they're not a church if they don't believe that Jesus is God. What's this one that's just uh, all the Hollywood guys are all following? Church of Scientology! like no 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 please you're not a church at all you're just an organization that milks people for money and you call yourself a church you're not a church okay tracking with me anybody any church that claims anything less than jesus is god is not the true church it is a fake church and he says you are the christ you're the one that god has sent to us The son of the living God. When you said the son of somebody, you meant you are of the same essence as somebody. Now, Peter's going to call him son of Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. You're somebody who shares the the, the DNA of a man named Jonah. To say you are the son of the living God is to say that you share in the essence, the DNA of the living God. And it's important that he calls him the living God. Because in his brain, the spirit of God helps him to understand right now. This place here has got dead gods all over the place. But God is the living God as opposed to the dead God. So if you and I are going to become children of God and enter the kingdom of God, that's where we have to come to. Where we have to understand that this man named Jesus is the ultimate spokesman for God. He's the ultimate priest. By the way, he, he, paid, he paid the sacrifice himself. He didn't sacrifice an animal. He sacrificed himself. And he's the ultimate king. Short of that, you're not fully understanding who it is that you're putting your faith in. And that is the son of the living God. He shares the essence of God himself. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And understand that that's part of what God the Spirit does in each of our lives. It's called illumination, where he turns on the lights. That all of a sudden, one day you go, 
Huh. Jesus is more than just a prophet. Jesus is God himself. Which is a, a thought that our brains really couldn't conjure up. Think about it. That God became a man. He was man and God both at once. That's where the spirit of God helps us to understand. Oh, that's the truth. And Jesus says, my father has revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is the first time the word church shows up. And Jesus is telling them, I'm about to introduce something, inaugurate something that has never before existed. That is going to come into existence and I am going to build it. And it will be built in the future. So when we move on into the New Testament, we discover what the church is, is us. Different from Israel. Every single one of us is indwelt by the Spirit of God once you believe in Christ. Every single one of us is bonded to everybody else in the body of Christ. It's a new creation. Something that has never existed before. It's an entire new creation. And he says, I will build my church. But if you know anything about this verse, you know that it has been one that has been a very controversial verse ever since it was written. Because the Roman Catholic Church says the Pope is Peter. And that there's been the succession all the way down. That is absolute nonsense. There is no way in the world, anywhere in the New Testament, we're told, Peter, you're going to become the papa of the church. And you're going to be the one who, who holds the ultimate authority. This was all read back in time. And, and, and they grabbed hold of this. But that's not what's happening here. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And remember what, what, what Peter meant? His name was Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus gave him a nickname. He said, you're going to be called Rocky. From now on, you're going to be a rock. You're going to become somebody who is a solid foundation for, for, for the disciples. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Okay. If only we could have seen a video of what was happening as Jesus said this. Did he put his arm around Peter and say, you are Rocky. And on you, I'm going to build my church. Actually, if he'd intended that, that's what he would have said. He didn't. So if he intended that Peter was going to become the foundational person who would lead the church and, and that the successions of Peter's down through the year would lead the church, he would have said, and on you, I will build my church. As you read the New Testament, you discover Peter is really significant. But so is John, and so is James, and so is Paul. In other words, there isn't one senior apostle in the, coming in the future. He says... To him, you are the rock, and on this church, I will build. On this rock, I will build my church. Did Jesus do that? As he said that, it's like, ah, oh, come on. Which one did you intend, Jesus? All right, after wrestling with this for 20 minutes, I've come to a conclusion. No, this is an issue come back to over and over and over during the years. And so here's what I believe Jesus is saying He's saying, You are rock. And I will build my church out of people who, like you, declare their belief in the rock-solid foundation that I am the King, the Son of the living God. In other words, what he's saying to Peter is, just like you declared who I am, everybody who declares, makes that same declaration and means it, will also become the people, and I'll show you in just a moment, upon whom I will build my church. Okay? And then he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, this is a really confusing, what did he mean? Did he mean that hell is going to attack the church? Or did he mean that the church will escape hell? Actually, the word here is Hades. 
It was the word that was used for the place where all the dead go. Good and bad go to Hades, which is a holding tank for the dead in the Jewish understanding. And what Jesus is saying, and guess what? Hades is not going to be a hold us back. Hades, the gates of Hades, when we go in and we die and the gates are shut behind us, they're not going to hold us back because I'm going to kick the gates open when I resurrect from the dead. And from then on, every single person who believes in me is also just going to kick the gates off its hinges and emerge with, as resurrected people as well. So, he says, you are the rock, and I will build my church out of people who, like you, declare their belief in the rock-solid foundation that I am the king, the son of the living God. Now, there's a very important thing to know, though. When he said, you are the rock, and I will build my church uh, upon this rock, and then he's going to go on and say, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, it's singular. He's actually talking to Peter. And he's talking about an authority that Peter's going to have to throw open the gates of heaven. Well, let's read it. And I will give you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, singular, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you, singular, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that's where the idea came from. Oh, 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 he's the Pope. He's got all of this personal authority. And so from now on, he's going to have that authority and hand it on to each generation. Jesus is focusing on the fact that Peter himself is going to be the first one who opens the doors of heaven. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, filled by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God enables him to take the story of Jesus and everything the Bible said about the Messiah and put them together. I mean, it's a miraculous thing that he does. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. That this fisherman suddenly can put all of this together and explain to people that Jesus is God. This Jesus whom you crucified and whom you know came back from the dead. This Jesus, God has declared both Lord and Christ. God has declared him to be deity. This incredible thing happens on the day of Pentecost that Peter can open the door of heaven and 3,000 people walk in right away. 3,000 people are saved on that day as Peter opens the doors of, of heaven to them. Sometime later, one of the other disciples goes to, to Samaria, which is the area where the people were half Jews, half, uh, half pagans. And the people there believe in Jesus, but Peter arrives, and when Peter arrives and speaks to them and lays hands on them, the Spirit of God falls on them so that God can say, see, it's becoming international. And then sometime later, Peter's the one who's taken to a Gentile, somebody who's outside of the Jewish nation entirely. And Peter is showed by God that he too, by believing in Jesus Christ, becomes part of the church. So Peter plays an incredibly important part as we go forward. Peter's going to hand the keys on to you and me, so don't panic yet, okay? There's an interesting thing, though, that in this translation, there's probably another way to translate it that would make a little bit more sense. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And the verb tense here carries with it that sense. He's not saying to Peter, from now on, you become God. From now on, whatever you say is, is, can, is, is permissible, will be permissible. Whatever you forbid will be forbidden. Peter, I'm giving you that kind of authority. He's not saying that. He's saying, Peter, from now on, indwelt by the Spirit of God, guided by the Word of God, you will declare the gates of heaven open. And as you do so, it'll be on the basis of what the Word of God has said. 
And so it will have already been, been loosed or bound in heaven when you speak. Are you guys with me there? So the authority that Peter carries is not an authority that's intrinsic to him. It's authority that is delegated to him by God going forward. Hang on to that thought because we'll come back to that in a moment. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And you go, are you kidding? <laughs> you just told us that you're going to kick open the doors of heaven. And, we're gonna... and he says, don't tell them. And the reason why he doesn't want to tell them, because again, they're looking for a political solution. And the time is not right for him to go to the cross yet. So he tells them, don't tell them that I'm the Christ. Because he knows that Satan will do everything he can to stop him going to the cross. In fact, we'll look at this a little bit more in the future. Satan tried all kinds of ways to make the church not come into existence. And he tries even now multiple ways to make the church ineffective. First of all, he tried to kill Jesus. That failed. Then he tried to persecute the church. And all they did was scatter the church. Every time Satan has tried to persecute the church, the church simply has moved on and become stronger and further. Right now in China, they're trying to do everything they can to stop the church growing. Again, they're going back to what they were doing previously. And right now they're arresting pastors. They're, they're kicking missionaries out of China. And that's why we pray today for Mark and Dana Blair who are in Beijing. Right now, Satan is trying to do everything he can to stop the spread of the church. And the interesting thing in China is every time they kick the missionaries out... The church got stronger. The church got better. The church spread further. And they're doing it again. So they say, all right, we're going to stop you meeting as one big church. Ha! We solved that problem. No, they didn't. All they did is they created tons of little house churches. And instead of there being one pastor, now there has to be 20 pastors out there shepherding the churches. Just amazing. Every time Satan tries to persecute the church, it grows. He made the church merge with the state, which didn't work. He caused them to sync with pagan religions. That didn't work. He tried to kill it with organization, with dead theology, internal disunion. He constantly tries to destroy the church and he constantly fails. Now, so Jesus gave Peter the keys. In a sense, at that point in time, he got that authority that he was going to be the one who started the process of growing the church. Years and years later, Peter writes a letter in which he tells us we have the keys. Now, it's interesting. As Peter writes these letters, he doesn't say, Peter the Pope. Peter number one, numero uno. I am Peter, the ultimate spokesman for God. He doesn't do that. He calls himself an apostle, but so does Paul, and so does James and John. He just, it, I'm an apostle, just one of the others. Interesting thing. He says, I'm a servant of God. And when he writes to the elders, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, I write to you as elders, As an elder, as a fellow elder. In other words, he doesn't take any great title for himself. What he does is he hands us the keys. As you come to him, read this with me. As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay. So, notice what he does. He says, you know, I'm, I'm rocky, but so are you. You are also stones in the building. And he explains in First Peter chapter 2 that Jesus is the cornerstone. Not me. Jesus is the foundation stone. Not me. But you, like living stones, are being built to become this edifice that God is, is, is bringing into existence. Now, 
I don't know about you guys, but I have another problem with keys. And that is, over time, <laughs> I end up with this box of keys that I have no idea what they're to. Have you got that kind of problem in your life? It's like, oh my gosh, over time, these things just sort of collect around you. And you're too terrified to throw away the box because as soon as you do, you will find out what key, that one of those keys was there. I've got a solution for you, by the way. When we left South Africa, I took my box of keys and threw them away because I knew that where I was going, there was no possibility of those keys being needed. So as Jesus is teaching the disciples and as Peter's teaching us, he's telling us, you've got all kinds of keys in your brain that you think are keys to heaven. And it's time to throw them away. You have a key in your brain that thinks, I have to be a religious person. No, you can't ever do it by earning a place in heaven. You have a key in your brain that says, Jesus is a good man. He's a wise man. He's a good teacher. No, 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 no. Throw that one away. He is that, but he's way more than that. There's a key in your brain that you think, yeah, but, but I know people who belong to XYZ Church. They're wonderful people. They're lovely people. They're good people. Surely they're in the kingdom of God. And you ask the question, do you believe that Jesus is God? And they say, no, of course not. Throw the key away. They're not entering heaven because it is not true. We've got all kinds of keys inside of our brains that have to be discarded in order for us to live the way God wants us to. How does he want us to live? He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that God visits us. And it's talking about the second coming of Christ. He's saying you need to understand you're an entire new creation. You're a holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him. You've been put here as something that has never existed before in history. New creations in a new creation which is called the church. And so I'd like to suggest that you and I should cement this in our minds. Read this with me. I am a key player in the most significant thing God is doing in the universe. Think about that. The most significant thing that God is doing in the universe today is building his church. And we get to be part of that. We get to be part of what he is doing. We come to the communion table as an opportunity for Jesus to renew in our hearts and minds who he is. For Jesus here at this table to give us an opportunity to reset our brains from the clutter of the week, the the thoughts of, of life, and to come to this place where we fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. The bread and the wine remain bread and wine. They represent the fact that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was spilt for us. And when you eat that bread, you're making a public statement that just as I take this bread and put it in my mouth, I have asked Jesus to come into my life. And when we drink the cup, you're saying, just as I drink this cup, I'm part of what Jesus is doing. I'm part of his body here in the world. The scriptures tell us that we shouldn't treat this as a, as a ritual, but that we should come to it as a sacred encounter with Jesus Christ. And so if you've never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've got to do just what Peter did, where you go, you know what? I recognize that, that Jesus is hum- was, was a man who became a God, who died to take the punishment for my sins. And right now, Jesus, I put my trust in you. I'm not going to trust in religion. I'm not going to trust in my own holiness. I'm going to put my trust in you. And then the moment you do that, this table is for you. 
for you to come and to join us. But for the rest of us too, it's, I think it's sort of a renewal of our commitment. Jesus said, do this often. In fact, I think he intended that every time Christians sat down for a meal together, they would remember him and they would consciously make a recommitment to him. And so consider this as an opportunity to come before him and say, you are my Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I come to this table in memory of you. So let's spend just a moment preparing to come to the table, okay? His mercies are new every morning. Every sin that every human being could ever have committed was placed on Jesus and he was punished for every single sin. Sins of the mind, sins of the body, sins that we commit and sins that we omit. All of our sins were placed on him. And though we sometimes bear consequences, he removes the guilt of our sin. And so confess anything you need to confess to him. And if you've never yet done it, just follow Peter's lead and say, Jesus, Son of Man, I recognize that you are the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the son of the living God. And I submit my life to you. And by faith, I put my trust in you as my God. Lord Jesus, we come to this table. We come in the sense of renewing our awareness of who you are. Of renewing our commitment to follow you. And thank you for the honor you've given us that we are key players in the most significant thing you're doing in the entire universe this day. What a gift that is. What an honor. We come to the table in memory of you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.